Hi, I'm David Crabb, and welcome to Stories in Session, a show devoted to the art and craft of contemporary storytelling. What we're going to do here is explore storytelling from all angles, topics, and genres. We're going to hear some of the best stories from live shows across the nation, and we're going to sit down and talk with the experts and amateurs who told them. I'm David Crabb, and stories are now in session. Hello, party people. Thank you for joining us today. A few years ago, right when I was getting into storytelling, I did Kevin Allison's Risk, and I told a story called Every Day is Like Halloween uh, that was about the time I dressed up as Frederica Krueger uh, for a Halloween party, Frederica Krueger being the sort of nightmare Mrs. Claus to Wes Craven's famous villain. Now, on that podcast episode, there was another story, uh, a hilarious story about an anxiety-ridden girl who actually ate parts of her shirt. And a few days after the episode came out, someone tweeted at me saying, I love Frederica Krueger so much. And I realized from the name that it was the person that told the story about having eaten the t-shirt, Mara Wilson. Now, I thought this was charming. We began an exchange, and I started to hear from other friends of mine saying, Oh my God, David, Mara Wilson is like tweeting stuff at you. How do you know Mara Wilson? Um, people were flipping out over Mara Wilson. Mara Wilson uh, was a famous child actress. Uh, she was in Mrs. Doubtfire, and then later the remake of Miracle on 34th Street. And then most famously, she became Matilda, the famous Matilda of Little Girl's Iconic Dreams. She's currently writing a memoir about her childhood. Her essays have been on Cracked, Jezebel, and the Huffington Post. And she recently wrote a really amazing piece of literature for a humor magazine called The Toast that we're going to talk about on the show. She has a recurring role uh, as the faceless old woman who secretly lives in your home on the very weird hit podcast, Welcome to Night Vale. Mara is also a storyteller. She has appeared on shows all around New York and across the country, really. I've gotten to tell stories over the last few years with her a few times, and she has always been just absolutely lovely. She's even the host of her own storytelling show, What Are You Afraid Of? With Mara, we ended up talking a lot about sincerity. She said over and over again that that is really what the practice of storytelling comes down to for her, and we're going to talk a lot about that on the show today. We're also going to talk about uh, a range of issues. We're going to talk about really important political hot-button topics like why Tom Hardy is everything, uh, telling stories about people you love, and how to think about social media. And of course, we're going to talk about Mara's show, What Are You Afraid Of? This is Mara Wilson. We are recording. Yay! Um, <laughs> I know you've talked extensively about being a child actor, so we're going to talk more about it. Um, no, I don't want to talk a lot about it, but I feel like um, in doing research... Well, first of all, in doing research, a few things happened. I found um, if Tom, uh, not Tom Brady. If Tom Hardy were your boyfriend. If Tom Hardy were your boyfriend. And it's this list of like all the great things that he would do if he was your boyfriend. And this is my favorite. It said, if Tom Hardy were your boyfriend, anytime you suggested the two of you do something, <laughs> it would be met with a solemn and vulnerable, do you promise? He would not look away until you did. Yeah, oh, that's, God. that's Tom Hardy. I wrote it with my friend Lindsay, who I've seen Mad Max with, I think, at least three times. And uh. she and I are just completely smitten with him. There are stories about him rescuing cats while on set in Romania. Oh and we are just like, he is everything. And we, we both love the toast. And the toast is a whole series of if so-and-so were your boyfriend, if so-and-so were your girlfriend. And, and I sent a message to Mallory Ortberg, who runs the toast. I said... 
do you think we could do if Tom Hardy were your boyfriend? And she said, only if it's amazing. And so yeah. Lindsay and I collaborated on this. And when we sent it to her, she said she cried a little. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, because she, she because she thought it was so awesome or because she imagined so hard that he was her boyfriend. That I it, think both. <laughs> she'd be very Thank proud you. of that. You, you write now, and you're writing yeah. a memoir, actually, about your youth and growing up and being in films. Yeah, yeah, I am. Do you still consider yourself a, an actor uh, in that sense? I don't consider myself a professional actor. I don't consider oh. myself a, a film actor. I wouldn't pursue a career in film. Mm-hmm. But a few years ago, I was just like, nope, no acting, never. And now, I mean, I'm doing a lot of voiceover work. I'm working with Welcome to Night Vale. And I realized, like... I've made enough little cameos here and there on TV or in web series or shows and yet that I guess I technically still am an actor, uh, Yeah. but I'm not pursuing an acting career. In, in researching you, I found some very adorable interviews. Uh, mm-hmm. And even mm-hmm. when you're very young, you talk about how you have a lot of stories in your head, yeah. which I thought, which oh, I yeah. thought was really interesting. And I, I think you specifically said when you were young that you wanted to be a scriptwriter. Oh, I did. Like when you were little, you always knew that. Yeah. How did that end up playing a role in you telling true stories from your life? I always wanted to be a storyteller. That is what I wanted to be from as far back as I can remember, which is actually pretty far back. I was always making up stories or telling stories from my life. And my family, you know, they would joke. My dad would be like, oh, yeah, Mara would start telling a story in the morning and I'd go to work and I'd come back and she'd still be telling the same story. And the (laughs) next day I'd leave to go to work and she'd still be telling the same story. And... They were just like these epics, and I would sing them a lot of the time, too. Like, I just wanted to perform. I mean, I kind of fell away from it, and I fell into acting instead, you know, and that was a way of telling stories, but it wasn't telling my own stories, you know. And as I got older, I remember thinking to myself, like, I'd heard about, you know, This American Life and the Moth when I was in college and thinking, like, could I do this? Is there are, are there places people are doing this? And it's fortunate that I ended up in New York. I learned that there was a storytelling scene there, and... I don't believe in destiny, but I felt like it was my destiny <laughs> because this is this is ultimately what I wanted to be. Just the same way that my brother, who loved to talk about dinosaurs and loved Jurassic Park, is now you know a paleobotanist. I was like, this is this is who I am. Was there was there a moment, um, you know, and storytellers do this, right? Like storytellers yeah. always try to find the moment, and even that's though, when I realized, and yeah. that's when it happened. Even though in yeah. real life things are kind of a slow crawl towards realizations, oftentimes, yeah. but. Do you feel like there was a a moment where someone said something to you about a story you told or you received a piece of advice about a story or something you were creating where where you where you actually thought, "Oh, I'm going to do this." There was there were a few times in college. I remember we had this class. We had 10 minutes to do anything we wanted on stage. Yeah. And I did this little like story performance art piece about my relationship with my father and how we didn't really know how to handle each other, I think, when right after my mother died. Because my dad was very much the like, okay, I'm going off to work and I'm going to be the fun one. You know, my dad was the good cop for all my childhood. And so it was really strange that all of a sudden he had to be disciplining us and he had to be, you know, and he was just so tired all the time. And it, and just the, the way that our relationship changed. And I, I did it by talking about how I always loved to play pretend when I was in his room. And so in this, I set it up to look like his room and then uh, put on one of his sweatshirts and uh, and picked up the sweater that I've been wearing and danced around with it to R.E.M.'s Man on the Moon like he used to do with me and my <laughs> sister. And it was really sweet. And <clears throat> and then at the end, uh, I put the sweater, I, I changed out of the sweatshirt back into my sweater and I put the 
and I picked up the sweatshirt and danced around with it to to Man in the Moon. You know, as representative of my father. It was a bit on the nose, but I was nineteen. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And and I remember the moment the the lights went down. I had never heard applause like that in my life. Like I'd heard, I'd been obviously in bigger theaters. This was just a tiny black box, but it was just like it had meant something so much to people. And friends of mine were coming up to me saying, that was about my dad. And I was like, well, no, but but maybe. And the the girl like videoing it said, I'm really sorry. I was crying during the videotape. It might be a little, (laughs) it might be a little, you know, wonky. And... I thought, oh, wow, you know, maybe this is something I could do. So in in the story, well, by the way, the story that we're going to hear today that you talk about um, your sister that I just think is lovely, how old is that? How far in your progression telling stories was that? That was the very beginning. That was the very beginning. That was one of the first stories I told. (laughs) Well, why do you you feel like you talk about your family specifically a lot? I think that, for one thing, I'm very close with my family, um, especially my brothers and sister. I'm... I feel like they're my built-in best friends, mm-hmm. and I feel like they kind of get me in a way that other people don't always. And I think it's because our mother died, and in the the community that I grew up in, that was very rare. You know, mm-hmm. to to have a mother die that was that was this strange, rare thing, and people were kind of afraid, like they didn't really know what to say. And that's something that we all kind of understand and we all kind of have in common. Our, our mother was this, this force. She was this very strong woman and she was a character. And we all have her in common. And there's such interesting people and there's such like a force in my life that it's strange to me that other people don't know them. You know, oh, just yeah. like it's strange to me that other people don't know, don't know my mother. You know, that never got to know my mother because she is this almost mythological figure in my life. This is Mara telling her story, Reconcilable Differences, on the Risk podcast in New York City. So when I was very young, I would wish and pray every single night for a little sister. And when my mom became pregnant, I, not knowing a lot about reproduction, assumed that I had something to do with it. Um, I I thought that uh, my little sister was a miracle and that she was going to be my best friend. She had no say in the matter. She was going to be my best friend, Uh, which makes me sound like a very calculating five-year-old. But uh, fortunately, we got along right away. Anna was so cute and so sweet and so funny, and nothing made me happier than playing with her and singing to her and making her laugh until she'd hiccup and go, do this again. But then when I was eight years old and she had just turned three, our mother died. She had cancer. And I knew that our relationship was going to be different from then on. So we went through a plethora of nannies and babysitters, but uh, Anna and I were always together. And then when I was 13, my father remarried. And I really wasn't a good age at a good age for it anyway. Anna was uh, younger and you know more malleable. Um, but one of the biggest changes that happened was my stepmother was Catholic. Now my mother had been Jewish, and my father had been a lapsed Catholic and said, "Okay, you can raise the kids Jewish." but my new stepmother wanted us to be Catholic. So that and a bunch of other changes just made me feel really put out and I ended up going away uh, to a boarding school for the visual and performing arts and then off to NYU, which is basically as far away from Los Angeles as you can get. My only regret was leaving my sister Anna behind and I would put her pictures and her letters up on my wall and I would marvel at how much she changed every time I came home, but I changed too. 
she became Catholic and I became an atheist. So um, it was Christmas Eve, my last year of college. I was home visiting her and Anna had pulled me into her room like she always did uh, under the pretext of giving me a makeover because <laughs> she got the color and style gene and I did not. And, uh, and so while she's you know painting my nails or whatever, she very casually says, so how long have you not believed in God? And I said, oh, well, I, I don't, where did you get that idea? And she said, oh, I pretty much figured it out on my own. I, I, at first I thought, oh, she read my diary, but looking back, I, I kind of was kind of obvious about it. I mean, I, I would always say, you know, no, I'm Jewish. You can't make me do this. I'm Jewish. It was my way of rebelling. You know, you can't, you can't make me do this. I'm Jewish. Um, and I would absolutely refuse to go to church. You know, my parents would go to church on Sunday and I'd, you know, sleep in and watch Homestar on our cartoons or whatever it was I did. Um, and, uh, but I never said, you know, take me to a temple instead. And uh, also, when I found out that my sister was going to a Christian school and her science book was called Exploring God's Creation, I decided to give her some books about science and evolution too. So she'd kind of put all of these together and realized it. And so I, I admitted it. I played it down a little bit and I said, I'm agnostic. And you know, there might be something out there, there might be a God, but I don't think it's any of the gods I've ever heard of. And uh, I don't see any evidence for it. And she looked very serious and said, well, what if I could prove it to you? <laughs> I said, I really don't think you can. And so we got into this theological debate. One thing to remember is that since I grew up Jewish, I have always, always resented people trying to put their religion on me. That's not something that Jews do. You know, Jews like being the elite. Um, so, and also my sister and I are both incredibly stubborn. So uh, she starts talking to me about souls and uh, she points to the boonch. Uh, the boonch is the dog. Um, the dog's actual name is Yoko. Um, which is funny because everybody, my sister especially, everybody loves the boonch and Yoko has a tendency to bring people together. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a bit ironic. But, uh, but she, she pointed the boonch and she said, you know, I'm glad that I'm not like her. I, human beings have souls, animals don't. As much as I love her, I'm, I'm glad that I have this gift. And I said, no, we, we pretty much are the boonch. We just, uh, we're a little more evolved. We have a little more cognitive processes going on, but uh, we pretty much are that. And then she brought up Pascal's Wager. Pascal's Wager is basically this kind of spiritual insurance. Uh, you know, better to believe in God because that way, you know, you die, you go to heaven. And if there isn't a God, well, you know, no loss for you. And I said, you know, I kind of echoed a joke I'd heard before. And I was like, you know, Anna, that only takes the Judeo-Christian God into account. I mean, what if you die and it's Odin up there? And he's like, you did not die in battle for me. No Valhalla for you. Anna did not think this was funny. Uh, she said, why are you mad at God, Mara? I said, I'm not mad at God. I don't think there's a God to be mad at. She said, well, you think you're so smart just because you go to college. And I got annoyed. I said, you know what? If there's one thing that college has taught me, it's that I'm an idiot. And that there's so much that I don't know out there. But have you read the Bible? The God, the God of the Bible is a tyrant. She said, well, it makes me feel good to know that God loves me. And I could tell she was getting upset, but I had to win. And I said, well, just because you want to believe that doesn't make it true. And she started to cry. And... I felt the kind of pain that I always feel when my little sister cries and like an idiot, I said, why are you crying? <laughs> and she said, because I know God doesn't want me to be mad at you and I want you to go to heaven. 
And I said, look, you're not going to convince me of this, okay? If I do choose my, to change my beliefs, or not choose, really, it wasn't a choice. If I do ever change my beliefs, it's not going to be because of something somebody said to me. And we ended up going out that night, and we had Christmas Eve at our very Catholic family's house, and we, uh, there was this sort of simmering resentment between us you know, for the next few days. She was furious, and I was furious. All through Christmas, we were furious, and she would roll her eyes anytime I would say something. And I was really annoyed with her, too. But underneath my, my annoyance and my frustration, there was this profound sense of loss, because I realized that... Anna couldn't remember the days when I used to sing to her and make her laugh. I felt like she had accepted Jesus into her heart and kicked me out. So the last night, um, you know, the, those few days we just kind of took it easy and, uh, you know, we played with a boonch. That last night, uh, we curled up with a boonch on the couch and watched the movie The Notebook, which was not my choice. Um, but, you know, I, Anna, Anna was 15 at the time, and, you know, I, I enjoy Ryan Gosling's torso as much as, you know, any other heterosexual woman. Uh, so we, we watched, and, um, but, and I could tell it was affecting her, and I kept looking over at her because this was my last night with her, and I didn't know who she was going to be the next time I saw her. At one of the sadder points in the movie, you know, she's cuddling up with the dog, and she said, Mara? And her voice was very young and very small, much younger than it she actually was. And she said, Mara, do you think the city would let us bury a dog up in the hills after it died? Well, that was not the kind of question I was expecting. Uh, and I said, well, I don't know, why? And she started talking about, you know, how much she and the dog loved going on walks up in the hills behind our house and how happy it made her and how much the dog loved it. And that's where she would like to bury her after she died. And the dog's a rescue. She was kind of old and we got her anyway. And she was so sad talking about it. Just the idea of this loss made her sad. And she said, I don't know. I just wish the boonch could live forever, you know? And I wish that I had said something. I wish I had said, I know. I wish that I had comforted her in some way. But I just started to cry. And the thing is, I think that if there were some way that I could take all the pain that my sister ever has felt in her life or ever will feel in her life and experience it myself instead of it happening to her, I would gladly do that. But I'm not a messiah. And uh, the best I can do really is to wish and hope that she doesn't have to have any kind of unnecessary pain. But I don't believe wishes come true anymore. Um, so my sister's beliefs have changed a little in the past few years. Uh, she told me that she does believe animals have souls and she's a vegetarian now. Um, and the thing is though that she is still a Christian. She's still a Catholic. I'm still an atheist. And her beliefs might change and my beliefs might change, but I don't think we will ever stop trying to save each other. Thank you. That was Mara Wilson telling her story, Reconcilable Differences on Risk. The thing that I, I love about this story is that, you know, I think when people hear that an actor has become a storyteller, they expect yeah. a certain thing. And I do like characters in my stories, and I know other people who are actors, and I know other storytellers that don't have an acting background that, yeah. that get really theatrical. And I feel like this story is so 
peaceful. Like, yeah. I don't feel like it, there's a lot of bells and whistles. And it feels like it's just being really told from an honest, sincere place without a lot of yeah. flash. That's kind of my thing. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm, I am pathologically honest. And I'm, I, I believe in sincerity. That is, that is, you know, my guiding principle, I think. I, and I think it's because I was such an angry, bitter, sarcastic, guarded teenager that mm-hmm. because of that, I, 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 I don't, I don't want any part of that anymore. I feel like that's, I feel like that's kid stuff yeah. <laughs> and it takes strength to be patient and kind. Like Morrissey said, yes. uh, <laughs> you're wearing the Smith's shirt. You're activating every I, good part of well, me. Well, that today. line, I actually know, I do know Morrissey and the Smith's rather well, but that I only know because Chris Gethard has it on his arm yeah. and yeah, yeah, and he's done my show before and I asked him what it was and he's like, yes, I have a Morrissey tattoo. Why does he feel shame? This is a beautiful thing. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> So you mentioned them like when you were a teenager that you were a yeah. little darker, a little moodier. Uh, what yeah. did that have to do? How connected was that to being a child actor and that transition out of that or that change? Or was it not about that at all? It was partly about that, I think. A lot of it had to do with my mom's death. I was really angry. And my mom was the kind of person for whom anger was sort of her go-to emotion. She would she would get really angry over like really ridiculous things <laughs> and and just like rage and we were just kind of like okay that's what mom does you know and I was kind of like that too you know mm-hmm. and and angry women I think still have like kind of this place in my life where I'm just like yeah yeah I know I know who you are I know what you're about I trust you you know in in this strange way. Um, but some of it did have to do with Hollywood and feeling that rejection and feeling really ugly because, you know, Mm. not only was I going through puberty and having kids at school tell me I was ugly and fat, Hollywood was telling me the same thing. So I, I was really frustrated and I hated myself and I hated my face. I didn't like the way I looked and... I woke up one day and had huge boobs and was like, what do I do with these? And uh, now I know what to do with them. No, but at the time I was just like, what, what am I doing? And I felt really lost and really angry for a lot of middle school. And I had friends who loved me because I was angry and sarcastic because I found a way to make it funny. Hmm. And that's, I think, I think the thing that saved me is I, I got, I was funny. That's, you know, I was rebellious, but I was funny. Yeah. So... I got through that, and then in high school, my peer group kind of split apart again, and I got really depressed, and in 10th grade, I, like, just stopped talking, and I was pulling out my hair, and I was really miserable, and eventually, I went away to uh, to Idlewild Arts Academy, which is a boarding school for the visual and performing arts, and I was still angry there, but... I had a more of an outlet. And when I got to college, it was even more, it was studying theater. It was very much about sort of breaking you down to build you up again, you know, and breaking down your defenses. And I remember saying to somebody, oh, everybody thinks I'm a bitch. And this one guy who I'd only known for about a week at the time, who's still one of my good friends, said to me, I don't think you're a bitch. And I said, you don't? He said, no, I think you're an insecure girl pretending to be a bitch. And I, I felt like he had just seen me nude, you know? Yeah. Um, I was like, oh, wait, people know. People are smarter now. And I feel like I don't like sarcasm and I don't like cynicism because that stuff just made me more depressed. And I hate it the way a, a former addict hates the drug that ruined their life. Yeah. You know? It, yeah. it just kept me from doing anything and it kept me from moving on and it kept me... And I had teachers say things to me like, you know, you can think about death all you want at your age. When you're my age, you're just going to be like, hmm, I wonder what's new at Pottery Barn. You know, <laughs> you're going to be living your life. You yeah. you, you have to give it up. 
I feel like I know people are always talking about getting old and cynical, but to me, I feel like being cynical is a young person's game. I feel the same way. <laughs> and yeah. maybe I'll feel different when I'm, you know, 60, yeah. 70. But, uh, but, you know, that's, that's, I feel like I got through a lot of my disappointment with life very young. And now I'm just kind of like, whoa, I'm alive. Isn't that awesome? That's great. That's yeah. great. Do you feel like you mentioned... I fight it every day, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think if you wouldn't fight it every day... Yeah. Would you be, you'd be stupid? I mean, I, I hate saying that. <laughs> now, in addition to telling her own stories, uh, Mara Wilson, like I said earlier, has started her own show, What Are You Afraid Of? New York right now is booming with theme storytelling shows. There's music-based storytelling shows. There are burlesque-based storytelling shows. There are long-form storytelling shows. But the thing I really like about Mara's storytelling show, What Are You Afraid Of?, is that it specifically focuses on phobias and fears. Within each show, which features about three stories, there will be an interview with a guest expert, a guest expert who can actually offer real valid information and feedback related to fears. I have been on her show before and I absolutely adored it. I actually got some very useful information that assuaged my fear of flying from one of her guests. I wanted to talk to Mara a little bit more about why she wanted to start her own show and better yet, why she wanted to start this show. I, you know, I never thought I would be a host, funnily enough, uh, because while I am a control freak, I am a uh, lazy, uh, scatterbrained, <laughs> scared control freak. So I taking big tasks onto myself makes me just kind of want to curl up and die. Uh, I'm, I'm, I've heard the term uh, slacker perfectionist. Uh, and I, <laughs> but I was thinking one day, I remember I was, I had been going on a few dates with this guy who was just a really wonderful guy, but for some reason I just wasn't feeling it and I felt so terrible and I didn't know how to tell him. Mm. And dating just scares me so much. Like I would, I would rather go on live TV and do anything <laughs> and, and talk, you know, I would rather do that than go on a date because on a date you have to be yourself yeah. and it's only you and the one other person. And unless I know the person really well, I, I don't like being alone with one other person. This is fine because I know you and I like you and I trust you, but you know, and, and it's an interview and I'm, I'm used to interviews, but I, and so I was at work and I was, uh, I was working for this nonprofit called Public Color and we were getting ready for our gala. I remember I, I was painting a wall and I just thought to myself, I'm so afraid of everything. I could do a whole show on just stuff I'm afraid of. You know, and what I had said I wanted when I did my show a few years ago, uh, my, my one-woman show about my childhood at NYU, was I wanted it to be kind of like everybody was coming into my house and we were sitting on the couch and I was telling the story. Sort of like the focus was me, but the focus wasn't just me. Almost mm -hmm. like a birthday party in a way, like an intimate yeah. setting. I wanted it to feel like we were all gathered around to watch a movie or something. And I was just the hostess. You know, that's the feeling that I wanted. I wanted this sort of friendly, safe interaction. And I knew a lot of comedy and a lot of storytelling was all about shocking and provoking. And I thought, I really don't want to scare people. I really want to make this a safe space. I really yeah. want people to be vulnerable and embrace being vulnerable. And, you know, you're not alone. Now, as much as as much as you're the host of the show, you you always, I mean, as a host, you tell anecdotes anyway, but you also yeah. tell a story. <clears throat> yeah. Um, as much as it's a theme for the show, mm -hmm. fear, right? Mm -hmm. As a as a as a device, uh, a thematic device. Do you ever feel like you will have a show, 
tell a story or an anecdote and actually not necessarily triumph over fear, but mm-hmm. do you feel like you you experienced a, a real genuine sort of purge on stage? Oh, yeah. yeah? Definitely. Definitely. Uh, I, I feel like... I mean, I did a show a few months ago after I broke up with somebody, and I said on stage that... Uh, and I talked about how while I'd been dating him, I'd had an OCD relapse, and that was one of the main reasons we broke up. I think he couldn't... Mm. You know, I, I could live with my anxiety, but he couldn't. And... It And I said on stage, you know, you don't go on with the show despite your heart breaking. You go on with your show because your heart is breaking. You know, it's definitely mm-hmm. a cathartic thing. And also what I do is I, I talk about somebody's fears, usually mine, and then we talk to an expert on that subject. And my whole thing is that knowledge is power and, you know, we want to sort of assuage these fears. Because I think that's mm-hmm. all what it's about. You know, you can't, everybody has to live with fear. I mean, regardless of what you believe religiously, you know, there's there's definitely an element of fear in in just being alive. There's also a thrill in it because it's, you know, the best thing going and really yeah. the only thing going. But it's scary. Life is scary for everybody. And so it's all about, you know, embracing that fear and living with that fear and assuaging that fear when we can. Are there stories that, you know, and obviously you won't tell us what they are, yeah. but are there stories that you know are in your cabinet of tales that you want to share that you haven't yet because they are so scary and that you know that down the road... Most of those stories involve other people, mm-hmm. and I don't want to upset or scare them or or get too personal with them. I want to respect those other people's privacy. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'll think of a story and I'll think, well, that's not really my story. That's my friend's story. Or a, a lot of other times it's limited by my past. Like, I don't do a lot of live storytelling involving stories from, you know, my love life uh, because I know people would be like, you were my childhood and now you have sex. That's scary. You know, and I don't tell details. And also, I think there are things that people have a right not to know. My my brother said that he uh, he talked to Robin Williams on the set of Mrs. Doubtfire once and asked him, like, how he told stories so well. And he said, uh, yeah, I'm trying to remember the specific wording. It's what you uh, leave in and what you put out. Mm-hmm. Not put in and leave out, but the other way around. And and we feel like that. And, and so he and I have talked about that a lot and how we feel. And I think that that's something to keep in mind. Like when you are a storyteller, you have to be very careful about which stories you are going to tell. You, you have a, a, a huge online presence yeah, and following. <laughs> and it's so interesting that, that you're, um, you, you, you've, you've done amazing at that. You well, have a you. lot of people that love your writing, that love what you have yeah. to say. Is that interesting for you, though, being that you have the feelings about privacy and the internet that you just expressed? That's kind of a, an interesting contrast. Yeah, well, you know, the things that I don't talk about, I very clearly do not talk about. Yeah. And the way that I see it is... I have about, well, I used to have about, when I got the, to the population of my hometown, which is a little over 100,000, now I'm 200,000, so I imagine That's my hometown crazy. and a town next door, <laughs> um, I, I thought to myself, all right, before I tweet something, I need to imagine that I am standing on the hills of Burbank with the world's largest megaphone, and I am shouting this out to everybody. Do I want to do that? Yeah. And... Everybody's going to hear it. My dad might hear it, you know. My doctor might hear it, you know. Kids might hear it. And I've had to become a lot more careful. I think I feel like to be any kind of public figure, what you need more than anything is a really strong self-preservation <laughs> complex. And yeah. and I totally have that. So 
it's hard. It's very hard and it's tricky and I'm navigating it. And every day I fear that I'm going to say something stupid and there's going to be a backlash. But, mm. you know, I just have to live with that. I also have like this army of like, you know, young feminist women in their early 20s who who want to be friends with me. And like, how awesome is that? Right. That's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, I feel like and they're all like my sister's age. I feel like I feel like I'm the world's big sister. As much as the story that you tell about your sisters, about your difference in a way, it's also about the intense and very strong connection you yeah. have. How has she changed since you've told this story? Because this story is a few years old. Oh, she's changed so much. She <laughs> she went to college in San Francisco. And <laughs> yeah, and you can imagine what that did to her. Um, she's, she's I think I described her as hippie goth. She's, you know, she has an Edgar Allan Poe t-shirt. She, she writes poetry. She's swung from the opposite. She is like the most outspoken feminist, leftist person wow. ever now. And... Uh, She's still religious, but not in that same way. She's she's more into like feminist theology, and she knows more about every Abrahamic religion than anybody I know. And she's a visual artist and makes, you know, does drawings of like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And that's all the stuff she is forcing you to make sure people know about her now. Yeah, she's totally. Not... Well, okay, this is my sister in a nutshell, all right? So a few, like about a year ago, we were doing yoga over Skype, which already says something about her. <laughs> And she was like, we were doing a YouTube link and she was like, she was doing it on YouTube and she goes, oh, Mara, look at this video. It says yoga for menstruation for men. And I said, uh, yeah, that doesn't exist. And she's like, no, no, it, it does. I'll screenshot it and I'll show it to you. It says yoga for menstruation for men. I said, maybe it's mistyped or maybe what? it's a, it's a joke, like a mean sexist joke or something. And she's like, yeah, or maybe it's for transgender people only or, oh, I know what it is. I have this extension on my browser called Jailbreak the Patriarchy that <laughs> randomly swaps male and female and man and woman every now and then. That's what it is. That is amazing. Yeah, that's that's my sister. Well, thank you so much for chatting. It no, was awesome thank you. having you here. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, thank so, you much. so much. <laughs> All right, that is it for Stories in Session. Uh, today you heard our lovely guest, Mara Wilson, speak on many topics, great and small. Uh, and you heard her tell her story, Reconcilable Differences from Risk. Um, and I swear to God, I want her to start a hashtag for her sister. I just love that girl. She is the ghostly, witchy, pilgrimy hippie that is going to live in my heart now and always. So, um, Mara's sister, if you're listening, mm, I'm kind of fanboying on you. Uh, it's going to be a lot to live up to when we meet, okay? Uh, Stories in Session is produced by me, David Crabb, Rachel Hamburg, and Morgan Jones. Our theme song is by the band Monogold, who produces a legion of incredible tunage. Please go find their music online. I'm David Crabb, and I'm a little less scared now. Good night. Hey there, yarn spinners and uh, fat chewers. Made me feel gross. If you want to contribute to the conversation, find us on Twitter at SIS underscore show and on Instagram at Stories in Session. That's at Stories in Session. No gaps, no spaces, no underscores, or all the letters just smashed together like bad grammar. Stories in Session. Uh, we're on Facebook too in the form of a page that is hopefully not a hacking Russian bot. And if you're interested in learning storytelling in person or online with yours truly, go to www.crablab.com. That's with two B's and two B's. Crabba, labba. Bye-bye with two bees. <laughs>